obviously COVID has been such a say one of the best things for for Charlie Street uh, allow, allow us to reset refocus uh, like it was working but we're now smarter we took a step back and we actually go well actually we need to fix this but it took us being off the tools to do it it also fast tracked our own CPG product similar to Sean we we're, we're launching a, a product and that's essentially our yeah, it's, it's our chorizo. It's the plant-based chorizo. It's ground. Yeah. So that's the first iteration. We've got a number of different skews. But essentially, that came out of me creating a dish and it becoming an element to the dish. And the chorizo was the most like profound, uh, positive feedback of any dish we've had. And then people adding it as a side. And this was, you know, 2019. Uh, if you look at, you know, I don't have to do the numbers with Sean, but you know, the reason why the plant-based market is doing so well is there's a lot of lot of buzz behind it. It's meant to be like a 142 billion dollar industry in two years or whatever it is. But for us, it's like, what impact can we have as part of our core brand? Is we can do these experiential restaurants where it actually provides the core value of our business model and R and D these products that we're releasing. And then you have the overarching thing where you'll see all these products in uh, either food service or in also um, Whole Foods and, and the likes of retail, where there's a touch point uh, and there's an educational point, and you're actually having a genuine impact. And I think when we took a step back and had time to refresh, we looked at our model, we adjusted. And now we're, you know, we're looking, we're actually t- looking at this opportunity now of cheaper rent to look at more spaces than to also fast track our opportunity. And we're like, we're, we're you know, we're raising money at a, at a time that we're launching something that people were like, what, are you crazy? I'm like, no, I think we're just smart right now because we've got to take a chance and opportunity. And exactly what Eddie said, we are New York, this is our place. And part of the hustle that we're here for is to have a crack and I think um, we have to represent and Australians do that so well and why not The Australiana Show. Today's show is a passionate, feel-good bunch of awesome, idiot, kind-hearted mates. Australian legends in their own right, they all separately have decided to pack up their lives and move to the USA and have a crack at a deep, dense, competitive hospitality space. My question is that I ask why the fuck they decided this move. One of the most difficult cities being New York City and LA to open a hospitality gig in the world, and what made them dig deep and find the courage to do so? I'm going to ask about the pitfalls and what are the basic differences to opening a restaurant or a bar or a business in Australia and the USA. Also, the highs of being here, what they have discovered about the difference in style of service, eating, drinking, and the habits of Americans versus the habits of Australians. All right, gents, uh, we're going to get started while Dan's sitting over here eating his lunch. Thanks for all making it today. Um, We've got a pretty fucking awesome show. Um, We've got Sean sitting over on the laptop over there, and I'm going to run through the the role of uh, legends here. And, like, what's with the weather? Because Sean's in L.A., he's got sun, we've been pissed on, it's cold, and I remember last week, I think I was sitting at Eddie's new joint drinking Aperol spritz in the sunshine, so I'm not really sure what the hell happened. Anyway, round table, I'm going to introduce Eddie Buck's restaurateur of Chinese tuxedo and the newly opened the Tiger, T-Y-G-E-R, I'm not sure why he can't spell it, but anyway, he just opened that, handsome, tall Aussie. Um, we've got Sean on the uh, laptop for the viewers that can't see him. You can hear him, Sean Quaid of the newly opened plant-based cheese company, Grounded Foods, and he's a starred Australian chef. We're calling it starred because in Australia we call them hats because we're a little bit redneck, but he's basically a starred-hatted chef that's uh, in the US. He's coming via LA. Dan Churchill, author, owner of Charlie Street, TV celebrity chef in a good way, and all-round good human. And Jason Scott on the left of me, owner of Grand Tivoli and Pepe Cellar with me, an icon in the Australian hospitality industry and dumb enough to be my business partner. 
So, this is a show. It's very relaxed. Clearly, we've got beers. Thank God we're not recording this at 10 in the morning because Jason still would have brought beers. I'm going to I'm gonna do a bit of a roundtable. This is a really weird time. This will probably go out in around seven weeks from now. So, we're talking about we're, we're in October. Who knows where we're at? 25% indoor dining ability. It's starting to rain. Outdoor kind of sucks. We'll get into all that stuff. I'm going to go to Eddie. How long have you been here now? Uh, 11 years. I came out winter 2009. 2009. Somehow I thought Jason and you'd worked together before. Is that true? Yeah, back in Sydney. Back in Sydney, where yeah. it is? Uh, at the Ivy, actually. In Maryvale days, yeah. I'm yep. a Melbourneian by background, and before moving here to the States, I had a couple of years in Sydney where Jason took me under his wing. So <laughs> that's, that's, I don't know. Andy was actually my boss, and uh, he, <laughs> he taught me everything I knew. <laughs> really? Was he your boss? He was my boss, yeah. yeah. He always says to me that he said to me he worked in one of my restaurants that I was his boss. No one ever heard of Jason working in my restaurant. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think he makes all this shit up. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, we're, so, so we're all Australians on this show. You're, you're, you know, you've been here nine years. What was your first gig? Where did you? 11 years. Yeah. So where, when was your first gig here? Uh, I came out to be the general manager of a pub. So I'd been working in Sydney there for the Maryvale Group, uh, managing some cocktail bars at Ivy and then the main bar at Establishment. But I came out here on vacation to New York City. Uh, it was spring 2009 and just fell in love with the city. Knew straight away it's where I wanted to be. It's the industry. It was the space I wanted to be in. And went back to Sydney to a Sydney winter and immediately started trying to plot some kind of job opportunity or job offer to get me out here. And the job was the general manager of The Australian, the old Aussie bar that had 13 years. He was an icon owner, wasn't he? Matty Astle, uh, who's an icon for our community and a legend of Australians in New York. He ran that for 13 years from 2009, um, sorry, 2007, just up until the shutdown. So uh, I, I came out to be the GM of that venue. It was a real departure for me from what I was working on at the time, but it got me here to the city, to Manhattan, and started me on this wow. journey. So Dan, you know I'm going to give you a bit of shit because you're um you're very well known celebrity chef. You never wear your fucking shirt, and <laughs> I'm really happy wearing your clothes because I'm only saying that through jest. Um, Sean, for your information, some of his shows is wear his shirt. He's written a bunch of books, and I'm only jealous, jealous because he's got a six six pack and I don't. <laughs> and I'm thinking you did surfing the menu. Yeah, mate. Now that, all that's valid. I, I'll cop that. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of fucking need to because none of us. I don't think this. I, I thought to myself the other day if I'm not getting a six pack during COVID lockdown where I can basically work out any time of the day I'm never getting one so I've sort of got over that I know Jason doesn't care um, but I want to know how long ago did you get here? Mate five years ago I uh, well officially five years ago I similar to Eddie like I came over here and for about a year and a half I was going back and forward waiting for the right uh, ability to get the, the visa essentially <clears throat> to come over so you know I'd come over um, I initially came over because I got invited uh, to do a book over here yeah so launch one of my books so they allowed me to get over here and when i was over here uh doing the book i guess initial meetup then you fly back and you fly back over. so between that and eventually getting my my visa it was about a year and a half to two years so right. i've been here on my you know living here for five years officially but it was essentially a couch for like two years between yeah. home and here so so it was your first gig what was your first gig? Where did you work? Or did you have your own place your first gig? I had a place in Australia I was involved with. Over yeah. here, it was just Charlie Street, to be honest. Yeah. So, like, before that, I'd do a lot of stages at, you know, a uh, place like the Finch uh, yeah. in, in, in Brooklyn. I'd be at, um, you know, 
uh, even other establishments that were more low key but still taught me a lot with like open um ovens and whatnot, right. uh, such as Speedy Romeo. Yeah. Uh, and then you do all the you know the typical stuff where you go to Gramercy Tavern and like you do a couple of weeks there and, and all that. But in that time, I was doing all my content, all my uh, branding stuff, doing my media, and then till and then learning about what it's like to open a restaurant here. So yeah. that took. But Charlie Street's been open officially for two years. Yeah. As you guys know. Yeah, and I noticed you brought some in there, so thanks for bringing yeah, us. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well. Nah. I'm starving, and you just arrived with a hot lunch. <laughs> well, you said that you want a six-pack, so actually I'm restricting you. So I thought I should do right, a favor. sip of beer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, works out well. So, Sean, I'm really happy. That no one can see, but I can. I think, fuck, you've got your shirt on. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're in New York, and you're, you know, as we said, you're a hatted chef in, in Australia. You packed everything up and came to New York. I think your VC funding already for your company you, you've got grounded uh, uh, foods, which is basically a plant-based at this stage cheese business. No doubt you'll do more. You're now in LA, streaming through to us. How long ago did you get here? We we flew into New York last November, early November. So just about a year that we've yeah. been here. And we bought some product from you, which was great. And your timing was perfect, uh, so you could have some time off during COVID. So you timed all that well. <laughs> and why did you move out of New York? Why, why you came to New York and then you went out to LA? Yeah, so we, we originally wanted to go to LA. Um, just for a bit of background, like we, we had a restaurant in Melbourne that we wanted, uh, that was quite successful, we're doing quite well. But we just wanted to, you know, kind of expand our, around our, our horizons. So we're looking at LA for a second venue. Um, and in the process of pitching the restaurant to like potential investors, we, we kind of had like this side hustle of doing, um, you know, plant-based ingredients and, and products that I'd been doing for the restaurant. So everyone that we talked to was just way more interested in those products than investing in another restaurant. So, um, you know, we all know how much hospitality is a huge risk and huge expense. Um, so that's kind of how we found ourselves looking at um, LA. And then we ended up going to a food show in Melbourne called Global Table. We talked to a VC there, my partner, Veronica, pitched to him for about five minutes. Um, he's a VC based in New York like two days after that we had uh, an initial offer for a, a small investment and a chance to actually get into the US which was the same for everyone it's like the biggest hurdle is how do you actually get there yeah yeah I mean everybody asks that magic that, that magic question I think they kind of they still like Australians right I think Trump still doesn't hate us so I'm not sure yet but we just have to keep our heads he doesn't down. hate us but he's he's definitely put the price up like we're, we're here on a E2 visa and you know we had to Go, we spent months doing it, you know, go through the, you know, the proof of, you know, how much you've invested in the US economy, blah, blah, blah. But the actual cost of the visa went up, I think a week before we got granted our visas, it went up from like $300 up to, I think it was like 5000 we had to pay each. For yeah, it's pretty crazy visa. considering all of us probably consecutively at one point probably had a few hundred staff hired, you know, all US staff, so... I get that. So, so over my is my business partner in some, and maybe in some other people's. Jason, how long have you been here now? I my love affair with New York started in '99. I caught a Greyhound bus from Montreal and I arrived here pre-dawn. Uh, my hostel wouldn't let me check in, and so I dumped my backpack and I walked down the street, and there was. It was like a... Sounds like a fucking... The, the, the script out of Rambo. Yeah, I, does, I actually had been thinking about things, but I was remembering that first time. like Cowboy. I, yeah. I walked, walked out of the street and there was like steam coming up from the manholes. A yellow cab went past. There's this tall, glamorous-looking couple walking their standard, like, giant-sized poodle. And I just walked, looked around and I just thought, I have to live here. This is, this is incredible. That was when? 
Uh, that was 99. Jesus. Yeah. And a, a guy tried to sell me a rabbit, too, out of a, <laughs> out of a trench coat. Wasn't a fucking I can't rabbit. Kid you not. It wasn't a rabbit. had a very long tail. <laughs> is it, no, is it a, maybe, maybe. He's in a deli. He opened up the thing, and I was expecting to see watches, you know, because that's the only thing yeah. I've seen. And he had baby rabbits there and said, I'm selling pet rabbits. Yeah, um, well, they might still do that. That's actually yeah. not a bad little business. Yeah. So, so <laughs> anyway, so then I fell in love with, uh, with America, and I spent... Uh, I spent a couple of years working here after that, so back early on. Um, then I went back to Australia, and then eventually I decided I wanted to, to roll the dice and give it a go over here. So everybody won't know my story, but my story is you convincing me to basically open another restaurant <laughs> over here. I was yes. happily riding my bike in uh, Venice Beach in the sun, actually. Uh, Sean, you'd be nice. I was enjoying the weather, and then uh, Jason kind of said, we should open a restaurant together. I'm going to sell everything in Australia. And I kind of said, look, I want to stay in LA. I want to open a restaurant. Whoever gets the first site, that's where we'll move to. Of course, I just kept riding my bike. And he <laughs> actually looked at like 30 sites and eventually found a site. So I'm going to ask you all, um, I'm going to start with you, Sean. What's the hardest thing? Uh, you, you probably nailed it with the visa, right? But what's the hardest thing that you found, the difference between Australia and here, when you opened a business or started to open a business here? What was the biggest difference in the pain? I think apart from the visa, it's just... Um you know, because I mean, there's so many similarities coming from Australia. It's not like we're speaking a different language, but I think it's just a combination of all different little things kind of coming together where you basically have to start again. Like I've only, only just like built up a credit history, which is like, you know, super important here to get anything done. Um, you know, just starting bank accounts and getting a social security card. And there's like all these little things that, um, makes sense to people that have lived here for their entire lives. But, when you've been here for six months don't make sense so i would say it's it's not one big thing it's just like all these different little things kind of put together that you have to kind of keep on top of to um especially when you're opening a business um and getting vc funding there's you, you can misstep pretty easily quite early on so well you're kind of like the you're like the youngest of, of us as in um that has been here so you've had the most recent attempt to get into the u.s and that was pretty difficult right yeah, we basically scraped by. I think I got my visa in mid-Feb. Right. And Veronica got hers late February. So we just scraped in. We would have been fucked otherwise because, I mean, we'd already basically started investing in the business here. We had, you know, an apartment in New York. Um, we'd started buying equipment, which is part of getting the E2. You've got to put that investment in before they give you the visa. So... Um, it's a chicken or the egg yeah. thing. You've got to take the financial risk before they let you in. It's kind of a bit wacky. But yeah. if we wind forward to somebody like you, Eddie, you've been here, even though Jason was here before us doing some weird Rambo script, <laughs> you came here um, 11 years ago. How different um, was it a time then to now for opening a business? What were some of the toughest things you had to deal with? Uh, so 11 years ago, that was really early in the E3 visa program. Yeah. Most of the Aussies you'll speak to over here, a lot will be on the E2, like yeah. Sean and Jason, but for a lot of uh, Australians working here, the E3 was what opened the door for them, yeah. what opened the door for me. So that's a visa program whereby you have to be sponsored by a US based firm Um, and if you're in at a a graduate level position or experience you're granted that so that was what got me here in terms of that first impression uh, as Sean was speaking to there's a lot of similarities which you can be like lulled into a false sense of security by that I'd say it's about 80% similar you know the the key principles remain the same but then there's this 20% of variance and that was where I would find myself consistently getting 
tripped up or caught in those first couple of years. So just things like labour modelling over here, completely different to Australia with the tip structures and whatnot. And I've been here 11 years, I've opened a number of venues now, ran a number of venues... And that's still a calculus yeah. that kind of causes. So what you're talking about, so the people that don't know, they're probably listening from like in Kabul. We have this weird tipping system over here, whereas in Australia we basically get tips and we pull it the way we want to pull it, and it goes all automatically to the staff. Whereas over here, there's been this whole um, bureaucracy around what's the appropriate thing, paying people less an hour and that kind of thing. That's what you were talking about, and you're basically what you're saying in a really nice way is it's still fucked up. <laughs> well, just that initial adjustment coming out, you, you, there was a lot that one could assume and you could base on your own experience right. and understanding of, but it was that little 20% points of difference. So yeah. just, just beyond the tip structures, labour modelling is different. You're going to have more front of house staff here in the States than you do in Australia because they're cheaper. Sure. So it's a bit of an adjustment when you know, you'll have multiple people on a host desk, not a luxury we're able to run within Oz. So I had to pivot some of my expectations and understandings early to kind of fit fit the, that nuance of difference. And the wages here. has gone up since you've been here. It's like almost doubled, Substantially, right? yeah. Yeah, because yeah. well, it should be... I mean, in fairness, it has to go up, but now what's happened is the restaurants pay for it and clients still want to pay what they paid 10 years ago, right? So what do you think the difference is, Dan, if I ask you, what's the difference, you know, balls to the wall, honest, between Australian staff and American staff in hospitality? Oh, mate, I think it's... I think collectively it's one thing that we all say that's been the hard thing to negotiate. Um, From an operating standpoint, you've got to learn how to talk to your staff differently and and in a way that you've got to be empathetic in areas that you never maybe previously thought or it opens your eyes to being more open to those things. I think for me the hardest, hardest difference is we have like, you have sections of your restaurant and then you have sections of your line but... In Australia, I was just, you know, like everyone here was taught to do everything, right? You just, if something needs to get done and you're done in your section, you just, you help. Yep. Over here, it's not the case. It's like one person will own their station, do a really good job of it. Once they're done, they're not going to help anyone else. And that for me was a massive learning curve because I'm just so used to being able to, you know, build a team of empathy and like, you know, everyone work together. But coming over here, it it was different. You just, you had to have more people, they cost less. But then at the same time, you had to work out a way to get them understanding, and if you wanted this way, your ways of doing everything, which is not not easy because you're coming in there but, as But isn't sp- that the kind of point is that what Eddie was saying was why the system, tip system, so fucked up? Like you had a restaurant in Melbourne, Sean, and we've all had gigs there, and you're like, I asked Jason, he was like, they're staying in their section because they're only paid for their section in a, in a way. Yep. Right, so they're not they're like the busboy is not going to take a waiter's order because they're not allowed to. Right, so that's George the dog. By the way, you can hear your dog. You can hear your dog over there, Sean. Um, he's part of the interview. Don't worry. So, so if I go to Jason on this, so like you're very good at understanding the, the breakup, you know, of the dining room from busboys to wait staff, the bar staff. You know, do you agree with that? The tip drove the the kind of not ethics, I guess, the the work schedule for people like. We, we tried to open with this idea that anybody that you grabbed would be able to take an order, and we learned very quickly <laughs> that because there was some American staff were like, no, we don't do it like No, this. well, I mean, I guess from their perspective, they're not really paid the bulk of their money, so I'm talking about the staff, paid by the customer. Right. And it, it has fostered this, this sense that 
that their little section is it's almost like they're subcontracting a little bit of part of your restaurant yeah. right. as their own business right and they're leasing it off you almost yeah. and and they'll do everything they can to help the customer um, but there's a lot of not my section um, yeah but that's you know look this is only a a short experience in this and it's also New York and it's also now yeah when so I worked here 20 yeah. years ago it was it was very different um, how I, different like why I I felt like there was a lot more um uh, a lot more hard work and, and everyone was driven by the end result that the entire restaurant did well. If there was still that sort of sectional difference. So, so, so let me understand that. If that was different, and I asked Sean and Eddie and Dan as well, if that was different and they were paid less, but the system was still kind of broken, why is it like that then and not now? Well, we work hard on internal enterprise culture. Yep. The, the, one of the upsides of being over here is there's this massive talent pool, people from all over the globe. I think to generalise anything about New York yep. is kind of a fool's errand in that that there is such breadth, so much influence. You know, our team, we just opened a restaurant a few weeks ago, the Tiger, and I've never worked with such an international collection. Mm-hmm. And from the get-go, and this isn't just top-down, this is the team internally, the kind of work that they want to do. We, you know, just try to foster a culture of buy-in and part of something bigger and, and recognising that, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. So so you can't necessarily assume it. Yeah. And I don't think you can assume it in Australia or anywhere else either. But... but uh, this moment, I think, is going to be, represent a substantial shift for the industry. I mean, it already has. This sure. is this is the industry is in crisis, mm-hmm. but so this is an opportunity to kind of foster the cultures and 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 fuel the interior cultures that we want. So, is it a challenge? It's, it's definitely not assumed, and the the tip modelling is a broken system, and we have to do workarounds. But working with the team internally, and again, not just a top-down proposition, but having them buy in and invested in the success of the enterprise, recognising the upside for every individual. I mean, sure, I understand that. Like, I mean, New York, you know, I don't think LA is much different, Sean. I mean, well, I've lived there, and we've all been there. But, I mean, this is the most difficult city to be a line staff person. I mean, why would you come and live here and earn... 30, 40 grand a year and then try and pay your rent and then commute to work for an hour and a half on a train. It kind of, it's, a, it's kind of crazy, which we'll, we'll, we'll segue into later why we're all in this industry because maybe we are all fucking crazy anyway. So yeah, There's a bit but of Stockholm Syndrome. There is definitely a bit of <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome. So I wonder if, like, the clients, like, you go, I go to you, Sean, because you have people tasting your product. You're going now from restaurants to manufacturing. And everybody used to play this thing in Australia, you know, Melbourne and Sydney people are different. And I had restaurants in both. And then everybody does the same thing, LA and, you know, New Yorkers eat differently. And I always argued, well, people just eat based on their climate and the seasonality. I don't necessarily think people are people. But do you find, like, the client palette from Australia to, say, New York and LA is different? Yeah, that's something that we worked quite quite substantially on. I mean, going from... Melbourne to New York, there was a noticeable difference in um, – I actually personally kind of struggled to get used to the food in New York because it was quite, you know, lots of salt, lots of sugar. I just found everything really salty, super salty. Um, and then that's even going to, like, top-end restaurants, Michelin-starred restaurants was, um, you know, just drinking a lot of water because everything sure. was salty. <laughs> um, and then going from New York. By the to way, Miami. just by the way, Sean, the New York New York water is shits all over LA water. I don't know what you're drinking up there, but it tastes like shit in LA. You got to. Um, um, yeah, I'm definitely not drinking tap water. Here. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. It's just not the right color, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I'd say going from New York to LA was 
you know, in essence, they're kind of different countries, really. Yeah. So, so Dan, you've got a pretty healthy place, and I had this vision. You know, I'd come here for years, but I'd never run a business here, and I had that vision, and I'm going to be really old now and, and describe that movie, L.A. Story, which probably anybody under 30 has never seen. And they're in the restaurant, and they're basically cutting apart their order and saying, I want this, and I want that, and Danny DeVito. I think, oh, sorry, it was Get Shorty. I got it wrong, Get Shorty. And Danny DeVito is going like, can you get my scallions on my omelet? Not too brown, not too light, just saute them in the middle. And I thought, what the fuck am I going to go into when I go over there? And what I found is actually Australians are more picky. And I got to New York and I thought we were going to get orders in the kitchen that looked like they'd been hacked together by a machete. And what I'm getting to, if you don't understand with the restaurant terms, is that you get a dish and somebody makes you take everything out and put something back in. And, you know, there are there are lines between we've all run hatted places and star places where you just want to tell them to get fucked. And I actually got here and everybody was just ordering. No one was taking it because your your product is very different. It's very healthy driven. You've got a kind of a, 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 a lot plant-based, uh, plant-forward thinking. That's the new word, by the way, plant-forward. Um, do you find people quite picky at what, or are they just ordering your menu items? Yeah, look, I think there's a couple ways to look at this when you set up a menu, right? You could go... Um, uh, as a lot of us do, and and set out a menu that is this is what we have. Yep. You know that's what you get essentially. But you, in a way, that's educating the customer right. uh, as the purpose to why. For for us, I didn't want to have uh, for me. I didn't want a customer to come in who had any allergies or problems or concerns with what they usually have towards their diet and feel they couldn't have what we had. Right. So essentially, I created uh, your, your base ingredients for our bowls and our toasts that were uh, always gluten free. Uh, or, you know, essentially plant based. Yep. But then you can always add things to. Right. Uh, and to be honest, it's it's worked really well. And then to the point, though, that it got to a point where we added so much, then we had to tie it back in again and, and create a core lane. Because yep. when you have too much, like if you're looking for speed of service, which initially what our model was, sure. you every time you ask a question, it's time. Sure. And so you have to limit that question. So still provide some opportunity, but just make it really simple. I, I think coming here and learning that model and learning how to still look like you're providing so much opportunity and choice and looking after every single consumer for your brand – Whilst it was an educational piece to try and do so much, we all hear about the keep it simple, stay in your lane. And it's like keep up. it fucking simple, yeah, stupid. Fuck exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, we know. Because the thing is, it's really interesting. There's some psychologi- psychological value in the fact that a lot of people write about this is that too much choice leaves you always disappointed you mm. made the wrong choice. Yeah. So, you know, you're going to go there, and I've got a favorite diner of mine called Square Diner. Yeah. And they've got like 600 things on the menu. <laughs> Don't think I've ever eaten more than 599, right? So I'll go there and I'll just go, I'll just have the egg because it's a diner and I'm, you know, the history and all that kind of stuff. But you always wonder what the chicken tastes like. But there's 18 versions of it. And I think that there's some merit in that. So if we go to Chinese tuxedo, um, and I want to get to drink. Just on that, if I can say one thing in defense of the New York consumer, I think they're really well educated about – I think the demographic is largely very sophisticated here and educated about the context of the service offering. So if they go to a bodega, they expect to have every choice under the sun. But if they're going for some set menu fine dining temple, they respect the chef's expression. So so it's something where New Yorkers don't get enough credit, I don't think, where they understand the context of what they're ordering. I remember when I first moved here going to a bodega for a, a sandwich or something uh, and, and I asked for a turkey sandwich and they gave me, you know, a half dozen bread roll options, yeah. you know, 15 salad options. I was like, I just want a fucking turkey sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but that was me not knowing the context. Right. Whereas, you know, you go to some nouveau bougie sandwich bar and they'll have the composed sandwich, you know, yeah. kind of chef selection. So so I, I think trust your venue a little bit. 
Yeah, I think it's kind of really a valid point. I'm going to get to Jason about drinking in a second, and uh, um, since you provided the drinks, but I mean it, it's very valid because I find working in Australia, I work under three groups, and and I come back here, I find there's more difficulty in larger menus there into developing them cost wise. Yes, but here I just found everybody just delightful. Like there were certain terminologies that you can say here that you can't say anywhere else in the world. For example, I'm big at, you know, I'm a bit Italian blood, I love Rome. I can fucking assure you in a trattoria in Rome, you go, I don't like tomato, and they go, yeah, good for you. And I'm like, you're going to take it out? And they're like, no, we're not going to. They're very, you know, narrow-minded about what they're going to do because they're very protective over their culture and their style. Whereas in New York, if you used to say, look, I'm, I'm allergic to walnuts, they're like, absolutely, and all that kind of stuff. So I hear you. But what about um, your joint? Because your joint's got... You know, hot, sour, salty, spicy. Because you know, between the new place, which we're going to get to, your insanity of opening a place during COVID, there should be a book there. Um, how do you find dietary needs? Because there's a lot of ingredients, right? It's yeah. not chicken and eggs. It's it's like there's five or six or seven ingredients in some of these dishes. Chinese food can present. So Chinese tuxedo, which is currently closed with COVID, but we opened in 2016. Um, there's a lot of big, bold flavors in there. Um, and Chinese food can be uniquely difficult to accommodate different um, uh, allergens or, or dietary requirements. Obviously, a lot of shellfish and fish sauce run through things. Soy isn't uh, uh, appropriate for gluten-free diners. Yep. Um, but it's just a reality of you know running a venue in 2020. We have to be super thoughtful sure. of our guests. So in addition to our standard menus, we do produce and print dietary kind of restricted menus um, in putting together the concept for the tiger straight off the top. We think about those other categories. Uh, The tiger's more Southeast Asian in style, so it hasn't presented as much challenge because soy isn't such a big feature. But but we put together our menu, okay, this is our expression, this is what we want our offering to be. Now let's, then we almost need to reverse engineer it a little bit. Sure. What's the offering look like for a vegan diner, for a gluten-free diner, uh, pescatarian, shellfish I mean, there's iterations, there's like 10 iterations of any one menu, right? There's a bunch of different things that we need to be considered of now. Just nuggets for the kids. (laughs) Where's the kids' menus now? Where's the pescatarian, vegetarian, vegan, you know, yeah, I get it. And and look, if you're in the business of hospitality, it's about accommodating your guests' needs. And some of these things, these issues are more prevalent than they were a generation ago or even a decade ago. But I I have no problem with it. I'm a firm believer these people are putting it in their mouths and it's their money. So we should, you know, accommodate as best we can. It's a fair call. So this will be – Jason can segue this conversation for the rest of us, but the difference – the, the, so, so what we're basically saying is the New Yorkers are a lot easier to look after. Because I go back to Australia a lot, and i got to say Perth is a lot more like New York, whereas in Sydney they're a lot more picky. But as far as drinking goes, there is no way that you can say they drink the same. Okay, because we know that Australians are all fucking drunks. And, you know, you know, I mean, I go to Perth, and it's like everybody's just drunk all the time <laughs> in the restaurants. And they're like, you know, I mean, I had somebody the other night, or admittedly at your place, uh, you know, he said, I don't know why I felt so hungover the next day. I only had three or four Negronis and a couple of glasses of wine. And I said... That's a lot for a normal person, you know. You're on a, on a Wednesday night, and he forgot he had two drinks before. And I had to explain to him that I was like, because he's a hospo guy, even though he's a New Yorker. And I was like, you know, a Negroni's like two drinks, so he had ten drinks. He didn't think that was much. So as far as drinking goes, I know you and I opened Pepe's Cellar in Grand Tivoli. Jason, I'm speaking to. If you can't see him. What's the difference between the drinking style, what they drink, and how they drink? Uh, drinks per hour. Is probably the way I would describe it. Um, it's pretty. Australians just drink faster. Yep. Um, Americans really t- 
pay a lot of attention to what they're drinking. Um, they're really into cocktails. They're really into the process, the product. They like talking about it. I'm not saying Australians don't as well. Yep. Um, but it's very rare in an American bar, or at least the bar that we, we opened, yep. that someone's going to come in and have 10 beers and then think about what they're going to have later on. Yep. Um, so I think, I think there's definitely a, a def- difference in the drinking culture. I think it's healthier over here. Yep. Um, I can count on one hand the number of people in two years in New York I've had to ask to leave the bar. Yep. Whereas in Australia, that's... It's just in one night. Just <laughs> myself. Yeah. Um, but it's, in, 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 it's a much more mature crowd. Um, I think the, the 21 drinking age really does help. And I think there's a there's a tone to the the crowds over here that's a, a lot more mature and sort of appreciative of what they're actually consuming. Yeah, but a little bit well more well behaved, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but that, that could be the level of alcohol and a chicken or the egg, whatever it is. But I definitely find New York bars are much more civil, at least the ones I, I go to. Yeah, they are. I mean, you know, you should, well, I go to Perth, so Perth yeah. is kind of like going to like deep parts of Arizona where I have a place as well, but, uh, you know, they're a little less behaved when they drink as much. So let me ask you... In, in New York, there's just not that stand-up power drinking culture no. that we have in Australia. No, which in, is New where, in, in New York City. In New York City. It does exist in other parts of yeah. the States. I've definitely yeah. seen it. But the idea of tonight we'll stand up in a circle and just drink beers till we fall down. Yes. <laughs> Ironically, the ones that... It's uh, called a Friday in Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would... I like, I don't know, maybe this is just pure experience, but Jen's generally is a bunch of Aussies that are doing that yes. over in New York City. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. so that as uh, we've got yeah. beer here on the table. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so what about, Sean, what about in LA? I know, I, I mean, you know, whereabouts are you living? Uh, we're in West Hollywood. So what? how do you find it with the drinking there? We haven't actually been out, to be honest. <laughs> Since we've been in... Uh, you have standard 10 drinks tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's plenty of drinking going on at home, but it's... I, I think we... Um, Particularly Veronica, she loves a natural wine. Yeah, and we've kind of struggled to find, you know, something that's kind of comparable. I mean, our our wine scene back home, you know, the the regions is just amazing. I think they're very very underrated um, on a world scale. Yeah, I think you know you could say that about the whole food scene in Australia. Um, you know, thinking back to when we had, um, you know, the world's fifty best restaurants, and like you know, the world's food media is in Melbourne and. I think a year later they didn't really, I was looking at the Tourism Australia numbers that they shared with all the restaurants. So it was just kind of like, you know, it just went back to normal really. There was no real kind of flow and effect after they'd spent millions and millions of dollars on it. So, um, yeah, drinking in LA, I, I couldn't actually honestly tell you, we haven't really been out. It kind of seems a bit, uh, I don't know, personally, I, I, there's no way that I really want to go and sit with a mask on and then they've got all these strict rules here where you're not allowed to talk to your server for more than two sentences or something stupid like that. So, like marriage. Um, so let me segue because you were talking about the, the, the top 50, there's top 100, there's, you know, I'm, I'm just sarcastic yeah. the other day. I said I'm going to write a book called The Top 50,000 Restaurants, you know. It's like so there's that. There's an element in Australia where it comes to awarded restaurants, and I think we've all been there and had awarded restaurants, and, you know, we don't take them for granted. You know, I've had Best New Restaurant, Jason has. We only just got, one, you know, a restaurant of the year in, in Santini, and you kind of go, one of the restaurants I do in Perth, you know, you kind of go, oh, my God, that's it. Once you get it, I, you know, it's not like an Academy Award. You know your next film's $10 million, right? In a restaurant, you go, you know your next day's another 18-hour brutal shift, and it does get busier, though. And, and, you know, you can't hide the fact that when you win an award in Australia, it actually changes things. Do you, and I'm going to ask the question that everybody hates to answer because we somewhat in Australia aren't the 
people that love celebrityism in our restaurants. I know my restaurant icebergs became kind of like that, which was never the intention. But I'm going to go to Eddie for a second because you know what I'm talking about because you were here for a few years. You were fucking nut crazy enough to open a Chinese restaurant, a modern Chinese restaurant in Chinatown, which I would have thought, you know, some sort of gang would have kicked you out at that point. <laughs> you opened, and just to make it harder, it was not down a very famous street, and you decided to do it pretty much underground, right? And it, like, I don't know, your partners obviously believed in you, but I can't imagine too many business plans, people looking at that and thinking, great. Did you find when opening that, obviously the place is fantastic, it's got an amazing reputation now, uh, Chinese tuxedo, did you find celebrityism helped? Uh, look, it's it's hard to know, but it certainly hasn't hurt with the following we've been able to foster at, at China's Tuxedo. Um, a huge part of our being able to bring that to market with my business partners and exec, exec chef. So my business partner, Jeff Lamb, is Chinese-American. He's a general contractor, um, was, was well-known and respected in that community. We'd worked together on a previous project years before. And Jeff and I felt there was a market gap in, from the time he would spend in Hong Kong and Beijing and seeing right. the compelling things happening in the Chinese food space. There, my having just come out from Australia, you know, icons like Flower Drum in Melbourne, the success of newer enterprises like Mr Wong's in Sydney, as well as the restaurants that I love in, in Hong Kong and, and uh, China throughout East Asia. So we felt we had a market opportunity there and then it would live or die based on the consumer response. And we were really fortunate that people did respond to what we were offering and we found the, it really compelling. We brought out Chef Paul Donnelly out from Sydney. He'd been head chef at Miss G's for five yep. years previous to that. And then, you know, this is one of those strange uh, side effects of doing stuff in, in, in New York City. Uh, we got a, a great celebrity following, so we've hosted... The Kardashians. I know you're being hum- humble, right? Because we're yeah. Australians. Oh, I'll, I'll name drop. Yeah, I'll name drop yeah, with the best also, of them. Just to be clear, you're on. You're like making drinks with Justin Timberlake on. Was it Kimmel or uh, Jimmy Fallon? Did Jimmy that years Fallon, ago? And you're on there yeah. one day, and I remember you know Jason sent me a video, and I was like, "There's this Aussie idiot friend of ours, like on stage with uh, Timberlake making cocktails." So Kardashians came in. Kardashians. Did they make a difference? Mick Jagger, Bill Clinton, Jackie Chan was a real favorite of mine. <laughs> did they make um, a difference to your business? If, if people, you know, the, about the Kardashians did move the needle. They yeah, did move the needle. So un- underneath Chinese Tuxedo, I have a cocktail bar called Peaches, yeah. um, and they took a number of photos in Peaches. It's a very uh, uh, distinct yeah. uh, uh, space, so, so they took some photos in front of our interior neons. It was very apparent where they were, um, and since right up until we... So that was 2017, I think, they came through, and right up until we closed in March 2020, I'd see groups of young women recreating that photo and taking right. the exact same pose. So So... Yeah, I, I could. So, so I'd love to be uh, f- fake humble and pretend like it doesn't, but it does. It did move the needle put, for us. Like Clinton in a headlock and go, can you just tweet about this place? No, 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 no. no. I, 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 that, that was the only one I've gotten my corny celeb photo with. I really wanted to with Jagger, but didn't. That's a, but I know, it's I a tough one, right? Because we in Australia, we all pride ourselves on discretion. So even when I had the icebergs, we were we were proud that people didn't know who was in there, right? And like I, you know, Jason, we, we, we explicitly have that policy. Here right. I am name dropping on a podcast, no, but, you know, that's why, but, but that's the, the team are told no yeah. photos with those yeah. guests, yeah. and and, and that's why the Gardashians made a, a, a trip because they posted about it, right? And you didn't do anything about that, so I get that. So don't worry, because in Australia, remember in the eighties, it was like if you knew a very famous cricket player and it had an Indian restaurant, you would take a picture with them and put it up <laughs> on the wall, and it'd be like, look at me. Like, we don't do that, but like Jason and 
I, we had, we don't have your celebrity status. We had uh, Julia Robertson, and I remember we had Matt Dillon in. I was like, oh, that's Matt Dillon. There was not a single staff member, Sean, that was under 30 that knew who he was. And I was like, for fuck's sake, I'm old. And we had Jeff Bezos in one night that jumped wow. out of the restaurant, and I remember him getting out of the restaurant. There was a whole bunch of, you know, big million-dollar cars out the front, and all his friends got in that, and he waved the yellow cab down and went home. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Did you Do you have any kind of celebrity pushes through your place, and does it help? Yeah, look, mate, I we do. But ours are probably the younger, like, uh, Instagram celebs, for yeah. example. Like, we'll get people who have millions of followers on Instagram yeah. um, who are known, you know, in that younger demographic, which, you know, to be honest, is probably our, our, our demographic in general. And they'll come there to post a photo. Uh, we have this... Very, you know, one of the best moves we we uh, did was power interior design. I think it was like twenty five bucks to get our uh, bathroom painted with avocados. So we have the most uh, we have the most photographed bathroom in New York City, apparently. Yep. So everyone goes in there and takes a selfie, and we've had people with millions of followers do that. So it does move that the needle. Just oh no, it's <laughs> honestly, mate. I, I post through really all day. I do on. videos. I do everything. And one of the most liked photos I have on my Instagram is me in my fucking bathroom taking a photo. Do you have your shirt off? I don't. That's what's very unique, uh, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, I could do it with a shirt off, but you won't get that many followers. You might get shut down. But, um, but uh, it was really interesting. Um, I'm going to go to Sean, because I know Jason is Mr. Humility, and he won't talk about celebrities in his restaurant, because he opened... You know, best new restaurant in Sydney, a nice tiny restaurant for his first restaurant, 350 seats. We all thought he was insane. It was in a basement. But I'll say to Sean, so for example, celebrityism, right? Like you're working on your cheese uh, sauce. I call it cheese fondue. So you don't think if there was like, I don't know, name a Hollywood celebrity, but let's say the Kardashians, if she was like half naked in a bath of cheese fondue <laughs> and she tweeted about it, you'd be pretty fucking happy, right? Because in Australia, that stuff doesn't work. Like, there's this anti-food bloggers, right? But here it works. Yeah, it really works here. I mean, that's, I mean, it's a huge business here. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, funnily, as soon as we did our funding round and, you know, you, you file your SEC papers and you just get a, a deluge of, of uh, firms offering all sorts of, um, you know, services and, and a lot of them are, you know, Instagram models and, and influences and all that sort of thing. I'm not against that. I think um, I definitely wouldn't have done it back home. I mean, we used to get approached all the time by people wanting to have, you know, collaborations and partnerships and all that sort of thing. But, you know, here it does make sense. I would, you know, I would not say no to Chloe Kardashian having some sort of shot where she's... I know where Dolph Lundgren goes to the gym because I went to the gym once with him. So what about if we just get like a bucket of your cheese sauce and throw it on him and you take a picture <laughs> and we run and we're just like, you know, something like that. Because in Australia right now, the food critic who is like uh, probably like a, you know, uh, a New York Times food critic, John Leflin of The Australian, which is the largest Australian newspaper, yeah. is naming and shaming... Um, Influences, And he just did an article the other day. Actually, Jason sent it to me, and he was just talking about it through COVID because he was like, how can these people ask for free product um, and they'll influence the place? And what's really interesting is I understand his view, but it's like if an advertiser came to me and said, I'll put your name on a billboard, they're going to charge me. They're not doing it out of love. And so I understand Influence saying I want a free... And I would kind of argue the fact that a minute ago it was really cool in Australia to do that. 
do you think it's something that eventually Americans are going to get sick of? Because uh, it seems to work over here. It does, but you've got to be... Look, I think that whole influencer world is very interesting in the sense that they unfortunately think they have a number to their name. Yeah. And that that's a, the rating of how good a person they are. Not all of them, you know, but they they... they Unfortunately, they do move the needle in certain areas. But, I mean, our, our straight bat, bat approach right now is if people want to collaborate or partner, we simply say, yep, yeah, um, more and more can come in. Uh, just so you know, we're really excited for you to, to be here. Uh, the portions of your meal will actually, that you, you pay for, will go towards City Harvest. That's so, smart. So, like, they have then have the options to still come in and pay. Be good citizens. And be a good citizen. Yeah. Won't come to us. Tips will go to the staff. Yeah. But the, the, the rest of it will go towards a company that we are looking after who are supporting food right now in a, in a time that's, you know, quite chaotic. Yeah. So it's kind of like you then will have the, the right influencers who, who, you know, come in doing it for the right reasons and realize the situation, and you're still kind of working both fields. If that so makes if sense. you get somebody like Jason, for example, you've you have like I still I think it only took you a year ago to you figure out your Instagram was free, right? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the most untechnological person, but the most technology not I can't even say the word tech savvy person when it comes to things you love like music and stuff like that. But you open one of the most successful you know Sydney restaurants huge you know nobody had gotten French right for so long and yes there was some nice little places but you went I've had a bunch of bars I've been given every award you know in the in the book you know I know you didn't say that I'm saying that and then all of a sudden you open a 350 seat restaurant you didn't have any of that shit and you actually worked the opposite you made them come in give them nothing and then they talked about your restaurant <laughs> yeah yeah I think it's a very different market though Sydney was nowhere near as crowded for what we were offering, which yep. is an experiential restaurant where it was all about theatre. Um, sure. We had to have great food as well and great service, everything. But by being down with no sign and down at basement and, and all that, we gave them something to talk about through natural word of mouth. And then yep. everyone wanted to take photos of it and, and share it themselves. But I was, I was in a very fortunate position then because we were already very well known in the, in the industry and we knew that we'd be able to fill it. We hoped that it would come back. We knew we'd fill it. I think coming over to America, there's not many people who can say that they have a big enough impact in, in New York that they can automatically fill a restaurant no matter what. Yeah, right. So so what it sounds like too also, I guess you're you know, thinking about Peachy's being very photogenic and your weird avocado wall <laughs> and you know, your theatre restaurant. Yeah, we thought about what people should right, talk about. Right. We still thought about marketing, it's just we did it in a different way. So I think you should, uh, Sean, you should get a big fucking piece of cheese and put it on top of your car, right? <laughs> so you just get photographed all around LA, just driving around like Mr. Whippy. Um, so, like, look, I'm going to, th- this next part is all about hustling, right? So we've done a bunch of interviews with people. Um, I'm actually doing a town hall in a couple of days with, like, a few thousand people in Australia, and they're talking about what you did through this whole process. What's really interesting, and we're going to go to Eddie, is you were crazy enough to open a restaurant in the middle of COVID. I just want to be clear on this. You opened it in the middle of COVID. Nobody had a gun to your head. You didn't have to do it. We didn't make you do it. You didn't. You, you could have waited. And it's blown up. I mean, I've been there. I mean, I, I can't remember leaving. I think we didn't pay the bill, actually, the other night. But I've been there, you know, a bunch of times. So is everyone else. And they love it. And you've, you've absolutely nailed it. The Tiger, um, which is uh, 1 Howard Street. Yeah. 1 Howard Street. And you, what made you think that you were that that confident enough to open in the middle of COVID when basically we, by the time this comes out, we may have more indoor dining. But when you opened outside, there was no indoor dining. We didn't know we were going to shut down again in the city. The rest of the country was going insane. And, you know, uh, what gave you the confidence to do that? 
Well, I have to stress the project had started pre-COVID. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not like, it's not like the shutdown was announced and I got to right. work. It was it was a project that had been uh, percolating for a couple of years and we took possession of the site last November, started the demolition about five months prior to the right. shutdown. And at the time of the shutdown, we were about 10 weeks away from the open. So we were hoping to open in late May to get a strong first summer. It was conceived as an indoor-outdoor venue. Um, we're able to open the full frontage. We're going to have tables and chairs outside also. So it was uh, uh, uniquely well-positioned with yep. the the in the COVID climate for outdoor dining. And with the rules that the Department of Transport put in, we were actually able to add an equivalent number of seats outside to what we would have had inside. So unlike Chinese tuxedo, tuxedo's literally on the narrowest block in the city. And it's a road. And and, and it's and a street, a road, yeah, it's and a it's, road, it's, road. it's since been closed, yeah. so the street's fully closed. So we could go out there, but we would have gone from a 130-seat dining room at tuxedo to 30 outdoor seats yeah. and no peaches actions. The yeah. calculus just didn't work for tuxedo. We tried back in July. So and what you're basically saying is you would have lost money to open. It would have been a public service. We, we, we couldn't. We, we, we tried in July. We did a few pop-up weekends. but uh, And it was great. The, the, the section was full, but it was such a small section, the way, yep. that we're, uh, the way that we operate. We couldn't make money on that model. And so we felt, in part, our hand was forced a little bit. We had a bunch of staff who looking for work once sure. the federal government um, uh, relief dried up. Um, we were halfway through this project. We knew we ultimately did want to open Tiger. And when indoor dining didn't come back in July, we looked at it and we said, we have an opportunity to do a robust dinner service out on the street. And it was really, what do we want our role to be in this moment in time? Um, the most difficult question was, is this responsible? Like, is there, there, there is, I think, a public health responsibility sure. on any venue operator. Where, where did our role in that sit and fit? Um, and then people talk a lot about New York Tough and what New York Tough means and about the city bouncing back. You know, back in July was when there was so much talk and about New York City's dead and whatnot, which was utter bullshit. It yep. was then, it is now. And so you, we got a choice. What role are you going to play in it? And we could decamp out of the city and wait till it's all kosher and come back, you know, in the good times, or we could pull our heads in, or we could say, okay, what is it to be New York Tough? What does it look like? Yep. And for us it was... We know there's a consumer appetite for this. Um, you know, it's been a really awful year for, for, for the city, I mean, for the world, but for our city and industry have been uniquely hardly hit, hard hit. And we thought, well, what can we do in it? And I don't want to sound, you know, uh, uh, over the top with it or, or too pious. It's, it's not that. It's just our little block, our little corner, our little yep. uh, shop, you know, is part of a bigger organism a bigger city a bigger industry and we want it to be some light in the dark it's kind of interesting because i i interviewed a couple of veterans uh this show's coming out in a while from sparks and both boys had been here one australian and one american and the australian had been here 25 years and i sort of was really interested in their view on september 11th hurricane sandy financial crisis covid and every one of them is unique in its own disaster. Some self, you know, man-made. Some, you know, you know, natural disasters. And everybody always said the same thing after or during. You know, like I think Hurricane Sandy, they knew it would bounce back, but they were like, "Downtown's going to be a swimming pool forever." And yeah. you know, nine eleven, we're not going to fly, and everything's going to blow up. And you know, and then the GFC was at the point where there was no no money. There was going to be a run on the banks, and you know, da da da. And so I ask you, Dan, like, are you in the middle of projects at the moment? Yeah, like, uh, mate, honestly, COVID has been 
it sucks to say it, one of the best things for for Charlie Street. Uh, and wow. allow, allow us to reset, Why? refocus. Uh, like it was working, but we're now smarter. We took a step back and we actually go, well, actually, we need to fix this. But it took us being off the tools to do it. It also fast tracked our own CPG product. Similar to Sean, we, we're, la- we're launching a, a product. Yep. And that's essentially. You tell us what it is? Yeah, it's, it's our chorizo. So it's a oh, plant based wow. chorizo. It's ground. Plant based. Yeah. So that's the first iteration. We've got a number of different skews, but essentially that came out of me creating a dish and it becoming an element to the dish. And the chorizo was the most like profound uh, positive feedback of any dish we've had and then people adding it as a side and this was you know 2019 yeah uh, if you look at you know I don't have to do the numbers with Sean but you know the reason why the plant based market is doing so well is there's a lot of lot of buzz behind it it's meant to be like a 142 billion dollar industry in two years or whatever sure. it is but for us, it's like, what impact can we have as part of our core brand is we can do these experiential restaurants where it actually provides the core value of our business model and R&D, these products that we're releasing. And then you have the overarching thing where you'll see all these products in uh, either food service or in also um, Whole Foods and, and the likes sure. of retail, where there's a touch point uh, and there's an educational point and you're actually having a genuine impact. And I think when we took a step back and had time to refresh, we looked at our model, we adjusted and now we're, you know, we're looking, we're actually t- looking at this opportunity now of cheaper rent to look at more spaces sure. than to also fast track our opportunity. And we're like, we're, we're you know, we're raising money at a, at a time that we're launching something that people were like, what, are you crazy? I'm like, no, Everybody's I think we're eat. just smart right yep. now because yep. we've got to take a chance and opportunity. And exactly what Eddie said, we are New York. This is our place. And part of the hustle that we're here for is to have a crack and I think um, we have to represent and Australians do that so well and why not it's, it's kind of interesting because like then Sean you packed up and went to LA so anyway we just announced uh, a big news of some some other stuff coming between some people on this table and we my producer had to cut it because they got nervous about announcing it too early <laughs> uh, which I think is fair enough I think Jason's up to so not typical no good uh, I think I mentioned some pink flamingos and tennis balls and some sort of weird hospitality thing, but it's going to come out at some point. Um, you and I are doing a little gig together. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We're putting the last of our piggyback money in it, um, which is kind of where I wanted to go with this overarching conversation to think about. You know, Eddie brought up New York City tough, and I'm like, I'm I'm even going to go deeper and say hospitality. Because, you know, I've made money and I've lost lots and I've made lots and I've lost it. And it's never, I never woke up and said, that's it. I'm going to go and be a butler. I woke up and said, right. And none of us ever go, hey, we want to wake up and be an employee. We wake up and go, how do we get somebody to give us some money to go and open something else to employ a bunch of people, right? So we've put a lot of people through homes and help your families and so forth. What do you think, Sean, that inspires us to be this ridiculously stupid with our money and go and go off to, you know, like you could have stayed and had a really nice life in Australia, eventually built the restaurant to a point where you didn't have to show up as much. The margins are sure they're getting harder and harder. What do you think, you know, is the biggest key to hospitality? Because right now there's 600,000 unemployed people in this city, give or take the 100 that might be working. There's 50 million globally, 10 million employment, you know, hospitality people in the US. And they're, they're talking numbers like I saw the other day, not Asia, but European cities in the US, you know, sort of North America, Australia, they're talking high 50% unemployment. Like, that's a big fucking number. Like, we're talking 25 million people are trying to figure out how to pay the rent. So if, you know, being us, none of us are sitting, none of us drive Ferraris, none of us have secret money under their bed, or do you? <laughs> um, just looking at Eddie then. Um, but, um, you know... Every time something like this happens, what is what? What's that little thing in our head that makes us stay in this? Have to keep going. I mean, you can't. 
um, you can't really fail if you just keep like keep charging ahead. You know, we all chose to be in hospitality. Hospitality is not an easy road to make money. If that's, if you're in it to make money, it's, it's the worst fucking industry ever. You should go and be a garbage man or something like that. You probably sleep, sleep better at night and, and have a bit more in your bank account at the end of the week. But, um, you know, for me, like the reason we got out of restaurants and, and decided to focus full time on the, on doing products was, um, you know, particularly back home, I think the rent, restaurant industry was kind of broken before COVID, you know, there's a lot of things that needed to change and, you know, you were seeing all these, you know, hugely respected chefs on the front page of the age every day, you know, for, for wage theft. And it's like, well, every fucking... You're talking about Australian age outside. newspaper. I was just cutting there. You're talking about the Australian newspaper about the wage issues, right? Yeah. For, to the audience that don't know that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, you know they're, they're being exposed for having a business model that literally every restaurant follows where, you know, if you want to make it in the industry, you have to work your ass off. Otherwise... Um, you know, you're just another, you're just another McDonald's, really. But so I'd, I'd say, like, if I was to talk to you, Jace, like, since age 21, when you started your first business, which was a saloon bar in Sydney called Shady Pine, in when? Uh, it was 2010. 2010, when Sydney, we were both there. Were you there? I just left. Just left, and Sydney was you were around, were you? Males in Sydney, yep. Yeah, Sydney was basically shitty, you know, high end hotel bars hmm. and then you put a piano and a moose head coming out of the wall and went this is really fun and everybody realised that but you've not stopped building projects in that entire time no is that a disease that we need yeah, to yes it is it is I think I think we've all got the same disease really yeah. um, I think our memory is only as long as the last service that we've just done and I think that's how we can get up and have a horrific night service and get up the next day and have another one and it's actually really good. Yeah. And it trains us that we can fix anything and that we get and we get bored and, and we've all done the same. We you actually does something that's successful and then about a month later you go, Oh, I've got all these ideas now for what the next thing. Yeah. Um, I think it's a bit of a disease that everyone has in this industry. Do you think that's also like the high rate of divorce, like the military with hospitality, is that we're we're solution people, right? We fix stuff. And I noticed in the hospitality industry, I was talking to somebody about this that had four wives, and he's only 38. But anyway, um, and he's very poor from that, um, and restaurants, just to make it worse. And I wonder (laughs) if, like, you know, relationships kind of get overshadowed because we're fixers in restaurants. And we would just, when you have a fight with your girl or boy, whoever you're dating, you go, listen, do you need a couple of shifts off, or is that what's going (laughs) on here? And they go, I'm not one of your cooks. Like, how much strain does it put on your relationships? (laughs) <laughs> we look straight at Eddie. Um, well, yeah. To reiterate Jason's point, I think I think you've if you've got the bug, you've got the bug, and there's no point in fighting it. What's I, the bug? I, I, like the hospitality bug. Yeah. The, the I so often I have somebody say, "Oh, my cousin's moving to New York, wants to be in hospitality," or I'm in Australia, and somebody says, "Can you meet with my, you know, friend or whatnot?" And and I'll open with telling them all the sacrifices yeah. and all the awful things out the industry the entire modeling of the industry doesn't work mm, and the, yeah. the road forward is going to be a mess as there's this as the calculus has to adjust yeah. and then so 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 you know pull no punches be honest talk about the challenges and issues and then if the person says 
yeah, but I still really want to do it. I'm like, great, you're one of us. Get yeah, in, yeah, get yeah. in. Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's I've had some it. great interviews here with people who have come to the city. You know, um, we had Gina, a friend of ours. Uh, you know, she's now running two bars and has her own music studio. And 10 years ago, she rolled in and she um, had a resume she put to 100 bars. She said over 100 bars knocked her back until she went to one and, and offered to work for free. And for two weeks, it was some Korean hip-hop bar. And she ended up, you know, getting a job there. So... Like, look, this industry, barring the fact that none of you are flat earthers, right? Are you not, you're not a flat earther, are you? I mean, you are in LA, so we would forgive you. You know, barring when none of, we're not flat earthers and no one's got like a bunker underneath their apartment, the next year, like normally when I was talking economics with the CEO of Neuhaus, you know, normally, um, you know, there's a spring clean every nine to 10 years of the economy. Things readjust, things come back and they will. Sure, they'll be different and blah, blah, blah. But what, I'll start with you, Dan. Um, what's your thoughts over the next year? What is it going to feel like? And if, if I'm somebody in the hospitality industry right now, what should I do? Should I be hustling another craft? Should I stay in the industry, learn different talent? Uh, look, there's a couple ways to answer that. I think uh, there's definitely opportunity to do a restaurant right now uh, with with the way the rents are positioned. Yep. However, um, I think it's it's still going to be a very calculated risk. And what I mean by that is if, if you're getting 50% on your rent, there's definitely not still 50% uh, a number of people maybe your particular area the flat irons right. the the downtowns the um, the more dense populated foot traffic of offices will, will take a while to come back but what we're seeing is like the no leaders the uh, the west villages they're dense with people who are having more of a community a village vibe sure. so maybe that's more of a, a different you know calculated risk you have to think about I also uh, you know doing a lot of reading on the reports from um, these big hedge funds who are getting these things done they're looking at like high end fine dining is said to not come back until 2024 right that's the realism 2024 2024 then they're saying everything from fast casual to uh, you know, more uh, casual-esque higher-end restaurants would be like mid-year next year. Right. Now, even that, you should still be conservative. Sure. But if you're if you able to negotiate, firstly, your, your lease correctly, I, I, I personally see anywhere between 18 months to two years of your first uh, new lease at, a, at a, you know, a percentage of your revenue is probably a very smart decision. And then from there, um, you know, negotiate a, obviously, a reduced rent uh, on that as well. So... Right. So, so let me ask you this, like, because I hate fucking analysts, hmm. and I used to do analytic work for a design firm in hospitality. And when somebody's and, and high end dining always takes the first chop, right? Like, I'm going to ask Jace, like, you and you have been around. You've seen. I used to have high end restaurants. In every crisis, somebody would say. Fine dining's dead, and it's been dying since 1986. Mm. Yeah. And and every time it dies, somebody goes, "Here's 11 Madison Avenue. Fuck you." Yeah. Now, where it makes money or not, I don't know. But does that real like 2024? We're talking four years from now. I just, don't you think like I just came out of Perth, um, a call with one of the restaurants there, and they ran out of their top 10 percent of their wine list, which is over 300 dollars a bottle, um, because people are just indulging because they're not traveling. Yeah. So, what do you? What's your prediction over the next few years? Because I agree, it probably is twenty twenty four till it's healthy. But is it real? Uh, yeah. Look, I think I think there'll always be a high end market that'll come back at that upper echelon, and, and they've got money to spend. And these are people who have been able to dine out in a restaurant for six months, so they're they're starved for it. Yeah. Um, but I I agree with Dad that it's going to take a while for the city to come back with the population and the workforce. Right. Um, it, it will come back. 
Um, but I think I think it's at least eighteen months before it's even get likely to. So I'd say it's somewhere between two two and three years. So he's it, right about this is you, what you're basically saying is time to cut a deal. If yeah. You, if you can get some as long investors. as you can, as long as you can manage your lease um, that the, the, during these times, and you've also got an easy walk away in case right. this all happens again. You so. also yeah, like that's what I'm thinking. As you were saying earlier, this you know six to nine year period, you're seeing new fresher opportunities come through for restaurateurs and chefs who've yep. never been able to come here because yep. of you know what was going on. So we may see people who never thought they previously could. It also you know maybe people were sick of being in New York and this was just the catalyst for them to be here. Yeah, so right. you're almost getting a refresh of an opportunity for the industry um, and people like you know, Eddie what Eddie's done he's, he's adapted you know he's looked right. at that's exactly what we have to do we have to adapt we have to if you're really really here for being in New York you'll make it happen if you really wanted to you just find a way to make it happen so it's really interesting there's that movie am I, am I the oldest am I the oldest guy in the room I think I am yes. apart, from, <laughs> apart from Mark who's waving behind the producer's way but um, you remember the movie Demolition Man I brought up with the CEO the other day and he and Julia sorry uh, no uh, sorry you, guys you, <laughs> He's twelve. It's uh, Sandra Bullock and 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 uh, Stallone are sitting in the car, and he comes out of cryogenics or whatever. He's been in a sleep for fifty years, and he turns to her and he goes, "I'm hungry." And she goes, "Well, he goes, I want to eat da da da." And she goes, "It's Taco Bell." And he goes, "I don't want Taco Bell." And she goes, "Everything's a Taco Bell, right?" And and it was a moment there when I thought, which is really interesting, what Dan said, and I'm going to go to um, you, Eddie, is that um, I thought for a second mid-COVID corporations were the only ones that are going to survive. But they seem to be the fucking pussies. Whereas the rest of the general population that have the last of their money in their piggy bank are basically reinvesting in an industry. And I reckon corporations are going to follow only carefully because I know investment groups now, VC funds that are just freezing all their investments, right? And they're like, we're not giving anybody any money. And I actually thought we'd wake up to, you know, four or five big groups in New York at some point that basically own a bunch of the city. Because we know companies here that, are, you know, there are 30 restaurants in and they're all still shut. So if, if I was asking you right now, do you think that's the right move right now is to cut a deal, learn a new craft and dig, dig in? Well, I, I think it's a super, super exciting time. And look, every operator is going to have a different risk calculus. Yep. And there is huge degrees of variance, what kind of category you inhabit, how you're financed, uh, down to your neighbourhood, your location. But, and I've, I've got to be careful saying this because I never want to sound unfeeling or anything, but I, I, I think the next few years are going to be I think the industry is going to be in great shape. Oh no, yeah. sorry, no, that's that's a, a misstatement. This is this moment in time is devastating for the industry without question. Sure, and people are you know demanding relief and the like. Pretty consistently, the biggest issue every enterprise faces, whether it's big or small, relates to their real estate sure. currently in New York. The ventures able to break a break a rent deal, a lease deal are looking like they're likely to survive and the ones who can't are going under. Yep. So this moment in time is an inflection point. It's devastating. It is a disaster. Having said that, you know, this was the city that, that gave the world speakeasy culture. Bars were literally illegal in New York and bars thrived, yep. like when they were illegal. So the climate is difficult. The climate is tough. But the ones who, you know, are thoughtful of their risk calculus can figure out the risk that they can abide. There's a lot of the guardrails of New York City hospitality are being taken off of us right now. 
like there at the Tiger, we had to fight with the Department of Consumer Affairs, Department of Transit to get an outdoor cafe, to get 24 seats permitted on the street. We had to shut it down at 9 o'clock. It was covered in, you know, rigmarole and compliance and whatnot. Now we have 80 seats out the front and will in perpetuity. It's going to be a better restaurant. And we have a brand new lease on that. We've effectively doubled the size of the restaurant. The, the, for the whole time I've been in New York, we've had to fight community boards for liquor licences. Uh, Jason and I talk all the time about how 4am liquor licences, new ones in downtown Manhattan, they're a myth, they're make-believe, they don't exist anymore because nobody's going to grant you on a community board. That's going to change. There's going to be more sympathy for the operators now than there has been certainly in the 11 years that I've been here. So those who are comfortable taking the risk, those who are in a position to... Um, and it is going to exclude a lot of people because a lot of good operators are going to go under, have sure. already gone under and will in the next 12 months. But those who can survive it and just that question of like the um, the real estate issue, if there are cheaper deals, it means new operators are going to be able to come in. Now, I'm glad the big boys d- aren't comfortable taking the risk that some of the smaller operators are because this is a chance for us to move forward this is a chance for us to evolve and to thrive and i always think about those speakeasies of prohibition you know when a bar was illegal a new york city bar was still leading the world yeah, I love in the category yeah. I mean, you're basically saying if i understand this correctly anyways we're like weeds you know like when there's we're a like forest weeds. fire like there are in california and australia the first thing to come out of the ground isn't the big pine trees there's those little weeds coming straight out and it's green again in six weeks right the small independent yeah. hospitality ventures what they're doing right now in new york is they're building these outdoor dining rooms yep. and whatnot we're seeing them be entrepreneurial be, be you know d- uh, doing everything they can and that's all survive and i for one think it could be really cool i'm going to go to the, this the last question is uh and i'll start with you sean so you weren't prepared for this is what would you tell your 20 year old hospitality self <laughs> um Don't drink so much Red Bull, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's a, there's a I, weird thing going on. I don't know. I, I, think, um, I think just, you know, just it sounds corny, but just to, you know, believe in, in your skills. I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure you guys are the same, but, you know, I come, come up, coming up in kitchens where, you know, they're pretty brutal and you're getting yelled at quite a bit and, and uh, you know, put down and kind of working stupid hours, like I think, you know, working 80 hours a week upwards is not, it's not great for your mental health or your physical health. So I think, um, yeah, I would just say, you know, just hang in there and, and don't take anything personally and just, just get on with it and, and, you know, keep, keep putting in those, uh, those days and just kind of, you know, just keep refining the craft. Cause that was what, you know, kind of kept me going was like perfecting things and, and, um, you know, the, the creativity behind it. I was never one. And even when, you know, we had our own restaurant, I was never big on service. Yeah. I love the organization and the, you know, the creativity behind it and kind of like getting everything together and getting everyone going. And then service was like, sometimes in a tasting menu restaurant, it's almost like a letdown. Yeah. That, that's the wrong word for it, but it's kind of like a, an anticlimax because everything just goes, if you've done your job well, it just goes according to plan. So, but it's it's funny because uh, a friend of mine, well, you all know Mick Malloy in Australia, is a famous Australian comedian. He, yeah. You know, he said to me, we we had this chat a while back, and he said, you know, I know my show is going to be great, 
he goes, but I'm not focused on everybody laughing. I'm focused on that one dude sitting in the fucking back with his hands like this, just not happy. And that's what service is about in a restaurant, right? You never mm. think, you never think about the three hundred odd people or three mm. thirty or whatever you do. You think about that one dude that just you didn't put enough lemon on his salad and you destroyed his life, right? So, what about you, Dan? Twenty year old self, what would you say? Uh, but that was last year, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After plastic surgery. Uh, yeah, exactly. You, know, you got your pecs uh, added. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I love Australians. <laughs> you know, just, just one of the best things about us. Um, honestly, mate, yeah, look, I, I've always been told to trust my gut and that wouldn't change because, yeah. you know, this, I think we're going back to what you said earlier about why we hear the disease. It's like, it's an innate trait, right? I think we all collectively just have this hustle mentality, entrepreneurial spirit, whatever it be, to be in this industry. And, um, you know, there's I, I know nothing about this industry, to be honest, yeah. compared to how much is out there. So I just, even to myself, my 30-year-old self, if I was 40, I'd be like, you know, essentially just keep being the person who's open to learning. You know, you know nothing. Know what you know, which is nothing. Yeah. Um, and just being open to learning and adapting when you need to because that's that's essentially what we have to do for the next 10 years anyway. So. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'm scared to ask Jason what he'd tell his 20-year-old self. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd tell myself what I'd probably tell every 20-year-old that you, um, your 20s don't matter at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, only, they only matter that you should learn and absorb and be the best 30-year-old you can be when you come out of them. Wow. So just say yes to everything. Experience as much as you can. Don't get bogged down in a relationship. Don't get bogged down in a job. Just but it doesn't doesn't mean be flippant. Just learn. You know, take every yeah. opportunity you can to learn, and not necessarily just in hospitality. Learn different skills, different skill sets. Read different books that you didn't normally read. Date someone weird you wouldn't normally date. Yeah, and then just try and be the. We're we talking about now. We're talking about your thirty. <laughs> <laughs> just be be the best thirty year old you can, right. but recognize that it doesn't really matter that much during your twenties. I think that's a really know? good piece of advice from both of you, all three. You know, is that I man, I was a manager very young, and I think too young. Where I, you know, I remember at 28, I got a secretary and a computer when computers didn't connect to anything, just for the record, for the young people. Like, <gasps> but the computer's connected to a printer, right? And I, they said, there's your secretary. And I go, what do I do with her? And then the computer was over in the corner. I was like, I don't work with computers. I'm an old guy. I work with a calculator and a pen because I was too embarrassed to tell them I didn't know how to turn the computer on. Because well, how would I know that at 28? And I realized that I shouldn't have been in that position. I was way overpromoted. So, you know, the idea of the first 10 years of your life, listening to your gut and also... You know, don't drink too much Red Bull we got from him and do 80 hours a week, which is hard to say the hours one's hard because when you're passionate, you know, you yeah, have to... I, I think doing 80 hours a week's fine in your 20s. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't overcommit, though, to some company that doesn't really care about you. Mm. Yeah. Do do 40 hours a week for one company and 40 hours for another one and, and learn learn your best experiences from don't that. Don't be passionate about ExxonMobil. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> if you're passionate about that, that's fine. But just always keep learning. I'm probably going to get sued for that. But, um, Eddie... <laughs> No, I'm a similar mindset to Jason. I was an absolute fucking joker when I was 20 years old. (laughs) The only reason I was picking up glasses in a pub was because I knew I'd be spending those six nights a week in the pub spending my money rather than earning it otherwise. So, uh, and I'm glad for that because, you know, I saw venues through a different lens, a different vantage. I didn't know I was learning. I didn't know I was doing it for something more substantial down the line. But that was okay. It was part of a rich tapestry of life where I was doing other things and didn't like those and the hospitality kept pulling me back like it was very seductive I probably like I could say Eddie you don't need to be the last guy at every knockoff drinks <laughs> you didn't need every one of those beers every one of those drugs along the well, way well then you're different to Jason but he I doesn't even question but, it <laughs> well, I was a bit more determined learner than for, him, for, for a period I was with Jason last minute said drinks um 
but you know what? It's fine, mate. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's fine. I wish I remembered more of it. So, so you do, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I remember a lot of it. Yeah, you, you actually are tw- you're 27. No one's told you. To tell you but, <laughs> hey, listen, I, I want to thank you guys. I'm, I want to, six months from now, we're going to regroup. And we're cool. going to find out uh, if you, I've got a feeling the billionaires, one's on the computer there and one's making chorizo. Uh, I'll probably be working for all of you at some point washing dishes. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see where everybody loops in in six months from now. So thanks very much for your time and uh, have a great day. Thank you, mate. Thanks, thanks mate. Thanks, thank you. Sure. Thanks, guys. See you, See you later. That's it for this week, peeps. If you're enjoying the show, just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to, and ideally give us a five-star rating, if we deserve it, of course. It will help other people like you discover us. If you want to find out more on what we get up to, or to suggest someone we should interview, let us know. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, at The Raw Hospitality Show. The show is a Fabrica Collective production produced by by Mark Fellows and Samantha Webb, music by Jindal. 